Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for bringing each and every one of us here today to be in your house, to start the year off the right way, to grow closer to you in this. And Lord, I pray for those who are not able to be with us today, that they would feel a nearness of your presence, that they too would be able to worship you in, in whatever way they can. Know that, uh, I pray that they would know that they're missed and that we love them. Lord, we thank you that the body of Christ is made up of, of those who are able to do the jobs that you have for us to do and those who are passing that, passing that torch on to somebody else. But the church is a beautiful thing, made up of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and pasts and, and, and all kinds of different things brought together by the Holy Spirit, bought by the blood of Christ, growing together as one in the word of God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move into a new year, we do so with hope. But we also know that 2022 may hold some experiences that we wish didn't happen. It's always good to head into a new year prepared to meet whatever happens, no matter how difficult or evil, and do so with the strength and peace of God. In this fallen world, there are horrible, traumatic things that happen to people. That you wonder, why did God allow that to happen? Sometimes these evil events destroy a person's faith in God. Sometimes these evil events shake a person's faith to the very core. And sometimes these evil events cause a person to have an even deeper faith in God. It's easy to understand the first two responses to when terrible things happen, especially to good people, but it's unfathomable to understand how a person's faith could be strengthened because of an excruciatingly painful experience. Similarly, it's easy to understand the person who goes through the fire and reacts in anger, in desperation, overwhelming helplessness, or perhaps even makes things worse. Why? Because they're human. On the other hand, it's unheard of to see a person react in faith and hope because it goes completely contrary to human nature. We'll be starting back in our Gospel of John series soon. And in that next passage that we're going to come to, when we pick that back up, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we see a reference to Jacob's well in the land of Samaria, where Jesus will have a conversation with a woman who struggled with promiscuity and helps her put her trust in him as her savior. So before we dive into that passage, I first wanted to set up the origin of what is called Jacob's well. That's, that's located in Samaria by the time Jesus comes on the scene. The origin of this well is actually really traumatic in origin. In, in Jacob's family, which fits well with how to respond when traumatic events happen in our lives. In our passage today, a terrible event befalls Jacob's family, and Jacob's sons react in a very human way, like we already referenced in our opening, only making things worse. But through this painful experience, does God still have a purpose, and is this experience redeemed in any way? 
We're going to answer those questions by the end of this message. By the time we get to Genesis 34, Jacob and his family in the land of Canaan have seemingly finally found a home. Besides Isaac and Isaac's household, Jacob and Jacob's household are the only ones following and worshiping the one true God, El Eloha, Israel, the God of Israel. They are strangers in that region, surrounded by pagans. Jacob and his family have now settled by a Canaanite city named Shechem. This is what we read in our scripture reading. In fact, Jacob has actually bought and paid for a piece of land just outside of Shechem, but only about as big as he needed for his family's tents from the king of that city, a man named Hamor. One day, sometime after moving there, so if you, brought, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Genesis 34. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Genesis 34. It should be pretty easy to find. It's the very first book in the Bible. Or you can look it up uh, on your Bible app on your smartphone. Genesis 34. One day, sometime after moving there, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. We may have heard of Jacob's 12 sons, who would be the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. But I wonder how many of us knew that Jacob also had at least one daughter a girl named Dinah. Like anyone moving to a new place, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, goes out to meet her new neighbors. What is unfortunate, though, is that she did so without a chaperone. Dinah was perhaps 15 or 16 at this point, the only daughter of Jacob recorded in Scripture. Here she was in a new land and by a new city and probably wanted to check out the fashions and customs of the women in that area without the burden of having a chaperone, as teenagers often want to do. She may have even left home to visit the city unbeknownst to anyone, thinking that everything would be perfectly fine, everything was perfectly safe. However, Dinah's day in the city was interrupted by a dreadful event, verse 2. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. The original Hebrew, as what is reflected in the NASB, says that the prince took her and slept with her by force. In other words, the prince of Shechem took Dinah and raped her. He probably saw her, was filled with lust for her, befriended her, even showed her some of the sights of the city, invited naive Dinah back to his home, and then raped her. Seems like it's a page straight out of these times today, doesn't it? And just as evil. Shechem, with his morals all backwards and having had spent the day with Dinah, realizes he actually has feelings for her. Verse 3, he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. We read that he spoke tenderly to her. Perhaps Shechem even realized what he had done and was trying to comfort Dinah. As evil as the act was, it seems as if Shechem wants to make things as right as he can. Verse 4, so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this young girl for a wife. Now, we cannot excuse, we cannot justify what Shechem did in the first place whatsoever. But in Shechem's mind, he thinks he can make things right 
by then marrying Dinah and taking financial care of her. This chapter is the only place in the Bible where Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is mentioned at length. And this part is the only place where the story is central to her. For all intents and purposes, Dinah is defined and known by this one event. You might have had an incredibly traumatic event happen in your life that threatens to define you. It could be something that happened to you and that you had no control over. It could be something that you did to yourself. But do not let that trauma define who you are. Don't let that abuse, that heartache, that sexual devastation, that wound, that injury, that neglect, that torment define who you are. I'm not God. I don't know why that excruciating thing happened to you. But I do know that you have never stopped being his child. I know he has his reasons that are beyond anything we could comprehend, even if we tried. He has never stopped loving you. He has never given up on you. He has never stopped being right beside you. Romans 8.18 says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Romans 8 goes on to say in verse 35, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And I'm going to add to that or abuse or sexual exploitation or loss or emotional upheaval or mental breakdown or bruises or broken bones or betrayal or ridicule or loneliness or torture from those who make fun of you. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? The Apostle Paul's response of truth to this, and I want you to fully embrace this with all that you are, is this. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no wiggle room there. Nothing. Who are you then? If you are not defined by any of these things, then who are you? This is who you are. Chosen of God, holy, and beloved. That is who you are. When you are being pulled down by memory, by depression, by darkness, by the enemy himself, and you are being led to believe that you are whatever has happened to you, or whatever you've done to yourself, declare to yourself this truth. I am God's chosen, holy, and beloved. This statement is powerful. You know why? Because it declares the truth of who you are to God. Number one, you are God's choice. You may not feel like it, but if you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and King, that's the truth. You are God's choice. He handpicked you before the foundations of the earth were laid to be his child and nothing, no matter how meaningless or small you feel, will ever change that. Two, you are holy, not by your own power, but by the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. His righteousness covers everything that's ever happened to you. 
or, or that you've done, no matter how dirty, meaningless, or regretful you feel. And number three, you are loved. No matter what's happened to you or no matter what you've done, the Bible says that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate you from God's love in Jesus. So whenever you start to feel that darkness, that regret, pain, memory, or the enemy of your soul himself starts to pull you down into the pits of despair, stand firm, as Ephesians 6 tells us, and declare, I am God's choice, holy and loved. The news of the evil that befell Dinah reaches the ears of her father. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. We don't know how this news reached Jacob. It would be horrible if it was in the form of mockery towards Jacob and his family. I can't imagine what Jacob was feeling at that point. He was Dinah's father, and he loved her. Verse 5 tells us that Jacob kept quiet. We find out later that he had too few armed men to storm Shechem himself and demand restitution. Jacob, I'm sure, felt seething anger, emotional torment, and on top of all of that, helplessness. He knew he couldn't do anything physically about it in revenge or else risk the safety of his entire family. And at the same time, he knew who his sons were. He knew the rashness of his sons and feared what their reaction was going to be. Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamor, seeing an opportunity he couldn't pass up, goes to Jacob to try to smooth things over and work out a marriage contract between the two families. Verse 6, Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Whatever negotiation might have occurred is interrupted, though, by the arrival of Dinah's brothers. Verse 7. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because they had done a, he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. The words grieved and very angry, put it mildly. The first word, used as deeply offended, shocked, or grieved, depending on your translation, is the same word used in the Hebrew for when God looked down at humanity and the level of their sin before he flooded the earth, and he was completely heartbroken. The level of agony that God Almighty himself was feeling as he observed what his beloved creation was doing to each other, is, is similar to the emotional anguish felt by Dinah's brothers. Of course, it's agonizingly heartbreaking. Dinah was the princess of the family, and she was exploited and humiliated by a pagan. This was coupled with the state of extreme anger. The NLT says that the brothers were furious. The fact that the brothers were furious is not their sin. It's good to get angry at evil acts done against God. Moses got angry at those rebelling against him and Aaron, and those people were swallowed up by the earth by God's decree. 
Jesus himself even got angry at his disciples. Mark tells us, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. On the other hand, Cain was angry that God didn't accept his sacrifice, but accepted his brother Abel's. The difference is why one is getting angry. If the anger is precipitated by injustice or wickedness or someone else's disrespect for God, then what that means is that you're just sensitive to the things of God. Your response should likewise be in line with God's word. If your anger is precipitated by your own selfishness or pride or hurt feelings, then that's sin and needs to be brought before God. So the sin of Dinah's brothers is not in their feelings of extreme anger, for they were completely right in that reaction towards this injustice and exploitation of not only their sister, but their entire family. The brothers' sin is in what they do next, what they do with that anger. Hamor begins to speak with Jacob and his sons, verses 8 through 10. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters to us. And take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. In Hamor's mind, he's probably thinking, why wouldn't they want to accept this offer? They're the new kids on the block with no protection from the surrounding Canaanite people groups and no ownership rights to any good land to set his large amount of livestock on to pasture. Jacob and his sons aren't going to get any better offers than this. We'll see later on that Hamor has ulterior motives in wanting to establish a working and permanent relationship with Jacob. Shechem also makes his offer, verses 11 through 12. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Now, this is an incredible offer back in these days. We don't know how much of this is being motivated by actual love for Dinah or greed. But if Jacob's sons were just as greedy for monetary wealth as Hamor and Shechem were, they could have asked for anything. The brothers loved their sister too much, though, to more or less sell her to this pagan people group, especially after what Shechem had done to their sister. Now notice what is missing from both Hamor and Shechem's words to Jacob and his sons. What's missing? An apology. Any kind of apology whatsoever. Neither, <clears throat> neither one of them want to admit to having done anything wrong because they want to make their offers as appealing to Jacob and his sons as possible. Admitting to Shechem's sin would have put them entirely at Jacob's mercy, and they didn't want that. They'd have no leverage at that point. They'd have no bargaining chip at that point. They wanted to gain from Jacob's family, not lose from them. <clears throat> so this is the brother's response. <clears throat> and this is where their sin comes in, uh, verses 13 through 17. 
But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, and that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now there are two sins behind this brother, the brother's response. One, the obvious one, is that if you know the end of the story, this was never what the brothers had in mind. Thus, this whole response is deceitful, as we just read. Number two, it's been noted that the brothers were deceiving the Hivites by cloaking it with their faith. The sign of circumcision was given by God to Abraham and his descendants for the sacred covenant that God established with Abraham's line. It was a special sign to Abraham's lineage and no one else's. And Jacob's sons had no right to offer inclusion to pagans into that covenantal bloodline through the sign of circumcision. Do you see that? This whole time, Jacob has looked on in silence. At the very least, he should have spoken up at this point. I'm sure Jacob had no idea what his sons were really thinking. But here they were, threatening to dismantle the entire covenant by offering it to pagans and offering to intermarry with those pagans. Both Jacob's grandfather and father went to great lengths to secure a wife for their sons from their families in order to prevent intermarriages with the Canaanites and have the covenantal bloodline swallowed up by false religions. And yet this is exactly what the brothers are doing. But Jacob remains silent. How often do things escalate for the worse in life, either by what we observe or in our own lives and families by simply remaining silent. Silent. When the truth needs to be told in love, speak up or open yourself up to deal with the consequences. Dinah's brothers offer, sounds like a good one, to Hamor, Hamor and Shechem, verses 18 through 19. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. Well, no wonder the offer sounded so good to Hamor and Shechem. Not only would, Hamor, uh, would Shechem get to marry the woman he loved, for whatever reasons those were, but the Hivite people had probably heard stories about the descendants of Abraham. Stories about Jacob, and the, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and their extreme amount of wealth and success wherever they went and those stories had most likely made their rounds of ancient Canaan now was the Hivites chance to intermarry and marry into that covenantal bloodline and they themselves reap all the perceived blessings of that covenantal bloodline and there's the ulterior motive behind Hamor and Shechem's offer to Jacob's sons. So Hamor and Shechem went to the city gate to convince their brothers of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, 
all the while patting themselves on the back for their good fortune, verses 20 through 24. So Hamor and his son Shechem come to, came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? There's that ulterior motive again. Only let us consent with them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of this city. We further see here Hamor and Shechem's ulterior motive to gain tremendously from Jacob's family. And it doesn't take any more than that, <laughs> that in and of itself, to convince the rest of the Hivite men. All of them wanted their share of Jacob's wealth. Three days passed, and all the while, destinies were setting up to be drastically changed. The citizens of the city of Shechem went fully through with the circumcisions of every adult male, with visions of wealth dancing in their heads. It obviously would have been quite the surgery for an adult man, especially with the crude surgical instruments at their disposal. After three days, while all the adult men in the city were still recovering from their surgeries, Jacob's sons have their revenge. Verses 25 through 26. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Why is it Simeon and Levi who are the ones to carry out this treachery? Partly it was because they were full-blooded brothers of Dinah, all three of them having been born from Leah. This would have made them closer and would have made these brothers perhaps even angrier than the other brothers. Interestingly enough, however, Reuben was also Dinah's full-blooded brother and the oldest of all the sons. You would think he would be the one to initiate this mass murder. But judging by Reuben's reaction to not want to follow his other brother's desire to murder their half-brother, Joseph, later on, Reuben is probably not as hot-headed as Simeon and Levi. Joseph is not yet old enough to participate in this heinousness, so he shouldn't be included in these next verses. The other brothers, as we can see their hardened hearts later on, however, add to their part in this day of wickedness. Verses 27 through 29. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Now this just goes beyond any kind of somewhat justifiable revenge. Jacob's sons extend the pain they're feeling and destroy many lives of many families that day. It goes beyond anything we can wrap our minds around. Not only do these guys kill all the men of Shechem and take all their stuff, but then they take all of their wives and children. 
Some of these they may have married themselves or taken as concubines, but one family can't marry or take as concubines an entire city's worth of women. So what else is likely to have come out of this already extremely evil event? Now, Jacob's sons sold a bunch of these women and children into slavery. Now we can see how easy it was for them to sell their own half-brother into slavery. We can see just the unspeakable level of evil that Jacob's sons blow all of this into. One evil act begat deeper and deeper levels of evil. What is already a painful experience is made worse by Jacob's son's response. Now, instead of being ignored or perhaps even made wealthier by the surrounding remaining Canaanite people groups, Jacob now has to fear them. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number. They will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. At first, the covenantal bloodline is threatened by intermarriage with the Canaanite people, with the Hivites. It wouldn't have been ideal, but Jacob could have negotiated with Hamor and Shechem and only lost one child to intermarriage with the Canaanites. Now the entire covenantal bloodline is at risk of being completely destroyed by any Canaanites now seeking revenge against Jacob's sons for what they did to the Hivites. You see the, the, the source of fear that Jacob has? The deepness of their sin does not even sink into Jacob's sons' hearts, though. After all of this, they never get it. This is how hard-hearted these guys are. That's why they respond to their father, verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? Now they had every right to be extremely heartbroken. They had every right to get angry. Where they sinned and didn't see it as sin is when they came up with a deceitful plan and carried out revenge, and not just revenge, but unspeakable evil. Things went from bad to worse because of the insatiable desire for revenge. When people do unjust, unfair, or even downright evil things to you, as difficult as it may be to hear and embrace, revenge is never the answer. It will only make things worse, as we clearly see here. There is a place for revenge, but guess what? It does not lie with you. It lies with God. Now that doesn't seem right to us, to leave revenge in God's hands. But the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, Dear friends, never take revenge. Never. Don't do it. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Leave revenge in God's hands because it will always be carried out perfectly, both in action and in timing. If you seek revenge, it will only make things worse and will come back to hurt you more. But if we trust God to take his revenge on our behalf, we know it will be exactly the way he wants it to be. And not only that, but God's revenge on our behalf will always be what's best for us as well in that situation. We don't know much more about Dinah from Scripture, but I like to think 
from what we know about who God is from the rest of Scripture. He took care of her after that traumatic event, gave her a good husband who loved her, and God blessed her with many children. Genesis 46.15 tells us the number of Jacob's descendants, male and female, through Leah, who Dinah was a daughter of, was 33. Since it's noted that females are counted and Dinah was Leah's daughter, it's probable some of these descendants are from Dinah. I'm sure that God brought healing to Dinah's heart and may even have revealed to her why he allowed what happened to happen. Even though the city of Shechem was a place known for sin, evil, and desolation, God redeemed the city as well. When the nation of Israel, descended from these sons of Jacob, comes back to conquer this land of Canaan after being enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years, this same city of Shechem becomes a city of refuge for those seeking safety. What is known as a city of pain is redeemed by God himself to be a city of refuge. In addition, Shechem is the city where Moses' successor Joshua rededicates the people of Israel to the worship of God. The bones of the great patriarch Joseph are also buried at Shechem after Israel leaves Egypt. What had been known as a city of wickedness for 450 years before this, is redeemed to be a city of dedication and godly legacy to the Lord for the nation that descended from the sons who committed these atrocities. At some point that Jacob and his family were living just out of Shechem, Jacob dug a well. Everyone knew that Jacob had dug that well, even while Jacob's descendants were enslaved back in Egypt for 400 years. When the land was divided up, After Israel conquered it, Shechem became a refuge city in the land that was given to Joseph's son Ephraim. So when Jesus arrives at that well, everyone, including the half-Jewish Samaritans who now live there, still knew it was Jacob's well. What was the purpose of this entire painful experience we talked about today? Since Moses probably wrote this book, the book of Genesis, While the Israelites were on the cusp of entering and conquering Canaan after their 40 years of wilderness wandering, it was perhaps to show the Israelites, reading the book of Genesis, how dangerous intermingling freely with the surrounding pagan and moral-less Canaanite people they were supposed to be conquering soon. Perhaps it was to show how seeking revenge never makes anything better, but only makes things worse. Perhaps it was even to show the origins of the city of Shechem and God's grace in redeeming it for his purposes, no matter what people had done, as Joshua rededicated Israel to following God. God had his reasons for allowing what happened to happen, and we need to trust that, just like we have to trust him for what he allows to happen in our lives. Lastly, It's this location of Jacob's well just outside of Shechem where Jesus himself redeems that place to be a place of redemption. Where one woman and then her entire village end up finding their salvation in Jesus. So at this time of both looking behind and looking forward, let us look for the redemption God has and will work in our lives. We talked about some extremely evil experiences today. 
But even these God redeemed. In Dinah's life, eventually in the nation of Israel, and finally through Jesus saving the woman at Jacob's well. May we walk into this new year with that same hope of God's redemption in our lives now and with anything and everything we will experience in our lives in the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for redemption. We thank you that we can, even in this extremely evil experience, we can eventually see redemption in it. And Lord, I know that no matter what you have allowed us to go through, no matter what traumatic experiences we've been through, that's not the end of the story. That's not how we're identified by. We are your child. And you are redeeming everything in our lives, even the most painful and traumatic experience, experiences, that you may receive all the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.